Recording in progress. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Palace Way podcast, Palace's most irate podcast. And speaking of irate, uh, Liam, welcome back to the pod. How have you been, mate? Uh, I've been irate, mate. How have you been? Uh, I think irate is way too partial on brand for me, so I'm going to spell it out fucking fuming. Um, I think we've all been pretty fed up with the state of the club, really. I think there's so much to talk about. Um, not least Sheffield, the window and Brighton and so on, but of course the burning question that everyone wants to ask, you know, when's Hodgson going to go? It's not a question of <laughs> of if, it's definitely a question of when. Um, we'll unpack that and more in, in plenty of detail, but I'd like to give a particular mention to Bruno, who's back from a sort of temporary break. Um, he'll be resuming that break again, by the way. I don't want to call it study leave because it's we're past that stage now, but um, it's good to have you back, Bruno, just for a little bit. How you been? Uh, absolutely knackered, but uh, embracing the opportunity to let free my my anger and frustrations about this football club uh for the first time in a month um it's not been the most pleasant of times and a transfer window that hinted at excitement seemed to just fizzle out into nothingness and we've seemed to have followed suit on the pitch so it's not it's not great yeah absolutely i mean we obviously don't want to speak too much about the games themselves i think fans are aware in in, uh, in both games exactly what went wrong and what went well um, but we will do some justice to them because obviously there are some implications for the wider season um, and the squad at large. So, I mean, we'll just start with that. Liam, I'll bring you in here. I mean, obviously the game against Sheffield felt like a must win. It was practically a formality. I don't think there was any debate. You know, it, it, we had to get three points from that game. And I think a failure to do so would have led to widespread anger and disappointment if there wasn't already that already. So just talk me through about expectations coming into that game and um, the importance of that for Roy Hodgson. I think I think it's pretty simple, like you say. I think if that hadn't been a win, then I think regardless of the position we now find ourselves in currently, you know, I think he would have been gone pretty soon after because, you know, you can look at our form and say we're comparable to the likes of Sheffield United and Burnley and stuff. But the fact is, if we're not beating those teams, then, you know, no matter who the manager is they're going to go so I think it was one where we all expected and demanded a win um, but it didn't feel satisfying and I think that was the important bit I don't think any fan came away from that win you know thinking that we were going to have a turnaround and that our season was going to kick on no we it was a, a fairly lacklustre performance with three moments of brilliance from two players that we now don't have anymore you know for at least a couple of weeks and for one for a couple of months so I think it was like you say it was a must win in like the most basic of terms and uh, yeah I think that's one of the primary reasons why nobody felt overly enamoured coming away from it the Brentford game I think that win felt like a bit of an island in the stream really and I think stream is probably more like storm at this point I think those three points are something that you tend to find a way of hanging on to for a long time. And I think certainly in terms of how the table's looking, it's moments like that that really will define what is going to be a very, very slow end to the season, I think. So, you know, it was essential that we got the win. All credit to the team, all credit to Roy. I mean, we did enough to get over the line, but it was, certainly wasn't convincing. Um, just one thing I really wanted to raise was conceding that early on. I mean, it's something that happened against Brentford. It seems like a bit of a habit for this team. And of course, as we'll get on to in a bit, it happened against Brighton as well. So, just Liam, just quickly, what's going wrong with these early goals? Why are we conceding so early? Do you do you think we're switching off in the dressing room? What what could be causing this? I think it, it's partly a lack of inspiration from the side. I don't think it's a lack of effort. I think it's just a. 
I think they're just bored, to be honest, from what I can see from body language at the start of games. That coupled with the fact that teams know they can get at us and they know we're a bit of a soft touch, you know, I think that means that teams are more likely to come out and go, right, let's see if we can get them early. And I think that's definitely what Brighton did against us. Um, and it's definitely, you know, you can see from the Sheffield United goal, you know, that Brett and Diaz knew that there was an opportunity there and, you know, really put us to the sword. And I'd be surprised if they attacked the team like Bournemouth or something in the opening two minutes because they haven't proven to be soft asses. And we have. Um, I don't know what your thoughts on it are, but I think that's the most obvious signs to me as to why it keeps happening. I mean, obviously the Brighton goal was from a set piece, but much like Brentford, I mean, it was certainly a quick ball over the top and, you know, excellent positioning from players to sort of break past their man run in. So, you know, it's something that is a bit of a pattern. I think, oh, all right, we've conceded in different manners, but you're totally right there. I think if we concede too many goals too early on in games, it's going to become something that analysts pick up on. But, you know, we're going to have questions raised over whether or a soft touch early on. So, yeah, particularly interesting. I mean, the one big positive on that was... You know, obviously seeing Elise and Eze combining so, so brilliantly. Obviously, both of Eze's goals being set up by Elise. Um, what did you make of their overall performance? I mean, did you think their their goals were kind of flashes in the pan or do you think they genuinely had good games, Liam? Um, I don't think it was the best either from we've ever played. Um, but I think that was probably, you know, rustiness might not be the right term, but when you're in and out of the side like they are, you're not going to get the best versions of those players. And I think... You know, I think it could have, if things had panned out a little bit differently, have been sort of a window into what they can kick on and do for the rest of the season. But, you know, for various different reasons, that's not going to be the case. So I don't think it was a bad performance from them by any stretch because they, you know, between the two of them, they won us the game. But, um, you know, I don't think if, you know, if you were showing your mates a, a game to show what those two players are capable of, you know, you'd show them those moments, but I don't think you go sit down and watch this 90 minutes because, you know, I, I, I can only speak from, you know, my opinion, but I think they've both played better games than that. Maybe not this season, but, you know, last season in the run in particularly, you know, that didn't to me. And, you know, in terms of their performance and mood and everything, that to me didn't feel like one of those wins from the back end of last season. You know, it didn't feel like we were purring. And I think, you know, them not being quite 100% is a sort of key reason for that. Well, will the sun ever come up now that they've both done their hamstrings? <laughs> the sun itself's done no. its hamstring at this point, as you said, Liam. Um, Bruno, I want to bring you in on here because I think something that comes under criticism a lot for both players sometimes is their end products. I think Elise is one huge positive this season and how he seems to have turned a corner on the goals front. But I think both men had incredibly productive games and seem to again have, have gone back on the up right before their injury. So talk a bit about their end product, Bruno. What, what do you think of it and, and where's the trajectory going for them? Well, for both of them, I thought that that Sheffield game, they showed that they can actually both be consistent in front of goal. Uh, and fearless in front of goal both of them were taking strikes from everywhere um, and yeah Liam you say it wasn't their best performance together in the Palace shirt it wasn't um, and they're both you know constantly playing this sort of stop start routine with their injuries but it was a seriously impressive performance from them and you got a feeling as a fan watching them anywhere near the box that they were going to at least come close to scoring um, and it's the most deadly we've looked going forward this season, I think, um, in that game, either that or or in the Brentford game. But obviously that can only happen if they're both fit. And um, the truth is we won't get that for at least two months because uh, of at least his injury. So we're now in a position where we can't talk about having either players available. 
there are obviously, like you said, various reasons for that. But we've we've lost our chance to bolster our attack in the window. You know, we missed out on Corne. Um, uh, we missed out on other players we that were available. Uh, Sinistera has just signed for, for for Bournemouth permanently, so that's another player we missed out on that you know could have been signed in the summer to replace the irreplaceable Wilfred Zaha. But you know, France is not getting enough minutes. Hamada not yet. I feel like we're missing that spark in our team, that end product from anyone other than them two. And it's great that they've come along and they can definitely hit that more consistently in the long run if they remain injury free and if we still have them in the summer, right? But you know, with injuries in mind and their current track record, it's possible that that Sheffield game was the last time we ever see them play together at Selhurst Park, which is a horrific thing to think about, but it's entirely a possibility now. No, definitely. I mean, it's such a shame that just it feels like every time we seem to get these two combining and finally getting some meaningful minutes on the pitch and ultimately some end product, that someone seems to go, someone seems to get it in their hamstring and it seems to be a hamstring injury, doesn't it? But it is a real, real shame. Um, obviously, unsurprisingly, these are the club's best creative outlets at the moment and it's a real blow to lose them. And you think it might be logical then to talk about the squad at large and, you know, maybe to then move on to Brighton. But I think we should plunk the window in the middle instead because, I mean, chronologically, it came between the games. And again, I think we want to really talk about the sort of angst of the club at the moment. But I think we obviously need to talk about the end of the window because simply put, we haven't spoken about it since the last pod. Um, obviously, this is two bits of business. We're pretty substantial for a January window. Uh, with Adam Morton, a bit of a prospect coming in from Blackburn for an initial £18 million, rising to 22. Um, there was a pretty strong saga there, but Palace managed to get that one over the line. There was talks he might collapse last minute due to Blackburn wanting him back on loan, but Palace managed to do it. Um, very much a defensive midfielder, someone that was kind of in the Decore mould and someone that the club was after for some time. Um, Parrish himself has obviously got very public about the need to replace um, Decore in the window and Palace managed to get their man. And then, of course, Liam, we spoke a while about um, Daniel Mignos on the last episode and we obviously managed to get him over the line too for a fee that is actually probably a bit lower than was initially being reported and uh, shouldn't really eclipse £7 million in total. Um just before we really jump into it properly, Liam, how much are you going to miss having a little bitch on the pods about the right back situation? Because I know I will. Uh, it's the end of an era, man. It really is. Uh, do you know what? It, every night out, the story about Palace's right backs would crop up for me, explaining to a different mate that's probably heard it three different times about the the cycle we're in, but or were in. Um, yeah, it's it's a shame to a certain extent, but as soon as you take off the sort of, you know, the giggle goggles, um, yeah, it's uh, a relief yeah, more than anything in it. Bloody hell. It's, it's been so long. Um, I didn't, I was getting to the point where I was wondering if we were ever going to replace a right back um, without one coming through the academy. You know, um, I'd be watching the academy sort of praying, oh, is this like, is this that right back when we get a trialist? And no, it never was. So going to miss it. Um, but then on the other hand, extremely relieved. Totally, totally. I mean, you know, you think about the age we have now with, uh, you know, TikTok and all that sort of stuff that's changed. I mean, we we didn't have that in 2013. No way. It's been so, so long <laughs> since we last paid a fee for a right back. You think about how the digital landscape's changed these days, how the club's changed. I mean, it's crazy that we haven't paid a fee in that time. So, you know, life's moved on and so have Palace in one way, at least. I think some things will never change, as we'll discuss later. But I think one thing that has is this issue. So really, really exciting to see uh, a bit of change at the club in terms of that real, real strategic element being fulfilled there. You know, we've been crying out for a right back for some time, but I think it's no surprise that the club has even had to realise that they're going to have to replace, you know, Joel Ward and Klein eventually. So 
good to finally get there. And um, what do you make of the signing of Munoz, Bruno? Well, you know, we're yet to see what what he can really do um, because he's a he's an attacking fullback predominantly. He can, he's still you know professional footballer and defender, but his real assets lie in going into the box, crossing, heading, shooting, um, and playing little one twos. Um, so I think we'll see the best of him when we have the opportunity to attack uh, down the right hand side, which I don't know if we're going to have for two months because of the Elise injury. But yeah, you know, let's say um, we end up playing France on the left and Ayu on the right, um, and you can expect a lot of interplay between Munoz and Ayu. And I think, especially at home this season, based off you know the way Roy sets up, at least in the meantime, we can say that um, I think we'll see a lot of Munoz's attacking abilities at home this season. And I think we'll see him maybe take a bit more of a backseat away from home where the pressure tends to be on Tyrick Mitchell um, as a sort of defensive player. And, and the eyes will be on Munoz to see how he copes at Premier League level defensively. But, you know, for the money we pay for him, he's a brilliant signing. Uh, and honestly, I'm just happy that we, we don't have to deal with Ward or Klein or a makeshift Richards in that position anymore because we saw how that went at Sheffield uh, in that he got... Um, shown the wrong way and scored against within 25 seconds. Mm. Um, I want to touch on Wharton because he's the kind of signing that we should have made back in the summer um, in that he's a young midfielder, left-sided or can play alone, but at Premier League level at the moment, probably in a pivot, right? He's a really talented young footballer that reminds me kind of like a cross between um, James MacArthur and Romeo Lavia. Right, in terms of his press resistance, his ability to distribute, but also as a sort of strength and tenacity. Um, but that was kind of a theme of our window in January, is that we signed players that we needed to to stay afloat, right? Rather than players that improve our squad. We spent the most in the Premier League because we needed them, right? Decore is a long-term injury. Wharton will plug that gap and eventually be a better player. But if we'd spent that money on Wharton in August, before we'd signed his contract, we probably would have maybe even paid less. Mm. Right. We signed Wharton out of necessity. Same thing with Munoz, right? We needed to fill that right back slot years ago, Liam. Uh, and you know what? We're not going to end the bitching yet because <laughs> five years of failure from our from our ownership team. And I, I'm not going to dwell on that for too long. But what I'm going to say is there are still gaping holes in our squad. We went for Lewis Hall in August and did nothing off that link. We never signed a player in the position that he plays in. So that's a missing spot in our team that we had identified and have now not filled. Same thing with Maxwell Cornet, right? As a Wilfred Zaha temporary left-wing kind of first-team player because Matthias Franzer, in the eyes of our coaching staff, isn't quite ready yet, right? We've got these players that we've gone for and not signed. So we failed to, to improve our squad. We've got these holes at left-wing. We've got these holes in midfield that have been exacerbated by injuries you know we can't foresee the horrificness of our injury situation but we should at least be prepared for you know the worst case scenario it is you know risk prevention and damage limitation with crystal palace football club all the time so we can at least expect everything to go wrong so i'm not going to sort of keep banging on about the negatives but what i'll say is we sent a high amount of money we needed to and in the summer, we need to find the right balance between signing the right players, signing enough players and spending what we have. Just just to come in on that, Liam, um, a lot of people were doing the classic out of 10 rating in the window. I and mean, just just quickly, what rating would you give the window out of 10 and, and why would that be? Uh, it's a difficult one because the, the players we've brought in, I'm, I'm very excited by, particularly Wharton. You know, I can't claim to know an awful lot about Munoz, but... 
it, you know, he seems like a step in the right direction. And as Mikey said on match day CPFC, you know, it's it's a win-win in every sense because he can't be any worse than Ward and Klein, even if he's not great. And he might end up being really solid. Um, but and I'm very excited by Wharton, as I say. Um, it might take him a, a couple of games to sort of really settle. Um, but that happens for for most players, really. Um, you know, making that step. So. Uh, but then on the other hand, as Bruno's just said, you know, there's still gaping holes in our squad. We've still not replaced our greatest ever player. That's mental. Absolutely mental. You know, uh, and you look at, in midfield and yeah, we've replaced Shet Decore, you know, which we couldn't have really seen coming. But have we replaced James MacArthur? You know, I, I know he didn't play a whole lot last season, but he should have been replaced last season. You know, it was ridiculous last season to expect to rely on a 35-year-old man whose main, you know, uh, I guess attribute was his tenacity. So there's holes in the squad all over the place and I can't seem to look past them. So I'd say I'd say it's a 5 out of 10 for the window and that's because of the strength of the players is counteracted by the fact that, as Bruno says, everything's been a necessity and this is still really the bare minimum. Bruno, just briefly, what would you give us a rating? Um... Like I said, we did what we needed to, but didn't improve anything particularly. So I'll give it a 6.25 because hear me out, right? We signed signed the right kind of player in the positions that we identified as desperately needing to be um, improved, right? You know, Munoz is the right kind of signing. We have experience. We have international experience. We have attacking capabilities. We have a player with a good personality who gets along with Jefferson Lerma. You know, so that's the right kind of signing. And Adam Morton, similarly, incredibly young, incredibly talented. You know, people were like, oh, he gave the ball away on his on his debut in Brighton, which we'll get into. But, you know, for a Premier League debut at 19, right? That's unbelievable. He is two years younger than Michael Elise. Nearly, you know, he's 20 now, but... You know, he's an incredibly young player with bags of potential. And we've signed him for a fee that we will get triple four in any of the next five and a half years that he is um, contracted to us. So, yeah, 6.25, I think, accurately represent that window. Yeah, maybe it's a case of, you know, the signings of themselves are kind of like an 8 out of 10, but strategically it's it's awful. It's firefighting. It's not anything long-term. It was, like you say, a kind of a, a knee-jerk response to serious issues in the squad that both came up or weren't simply able to be addressed properly in the summer. You know, there's a lot to be said there, but I think, you know, certainly to be the biggest spenders in, in the January window across the board was something that I think fans aren't quite used to seeing. So unfamiliar territory but I suppose it is, it's never going to be unwelcomed by the fans to see new talent coming into the club and for fees to be spent like we did it's something a bit different I think it's not going to solve all our problems but you know it's a step in the right direction and gives us some direly needed reinforcements for the next half of the season um, but we need to talk about the elephant in the room which is the absolute desert class that was probably the only game left worth talking about in the season and um, Palace obviously going away to the Amex to face fierce rivals Brighton Hove Albion um, two teams in very, very similar veins of form in terms of number of wins, but two very different sentiments around their respective fan bases as to where they are as a club. Um, the writing felt like it was kind of on the wall and it was kind of one disaster from the next. So, Liam, I need a Hall of Fame here. Just just talk me through what went wrong from start to finish because it was horrendous, wasn't it? Yeah, well, 
we've got so i've seen i've seen uh ollie talk cpfc um talk about this on tiktok a bit and i think he's nailed it really which is the primary difference between the two sides was one one team has a manager that's you know really sort of inspiring to his players and really sort of you know, uh, carrying them and building them up and, and, you know, exciting them. And another team has a manager that's just instilling them with fear and worst case scenario and backing them into a corner mentally. And that was really obvious on the pitch. And it's really obvious from the first kick of a ball. And it was just, you know, like you say, the writing was on the wall. wall. And I don't think any fan that was going to the Amex or watching with a Palace persuasion was expecting anything other than uh, just an embarrassment. Um, and we've been lucky against them in the last three years, you know, let's have it right. You know, basically ever since the COVID year with the the last minute Benteke winner, we've been riding our luck against them. And this has been on the cards for a little while. So, you know, the only hope we really had was we kind of gave them a pretty decent game of sellers. But that was with Elise starting. That was with, you know, not quite as negative sentiment as we have now. And it was just one of the most depressing days to be a Palace fan in a long, long time. Absolutely. We, we hosted a live space on Twitter. And of course, if you're not following us on Twitter, please do so at the Palace Way, where we will be regularly hosting more spaces in the future. And um, But we spoke to fans that were there literally on the way home and, they were telling me, I think morale even going into the game is pretty miserable. I think there was a genuine fear that we would be embarrassed in the way that we were. Um, I think against Brian, you never say never to these things, right? But I think there was a genuine consternation because the way the fans have been piling on pressure, probably quite justly as well, but nonetheless, they've been putting a lot of pressure on the club. I think, you know, the atmosphere was sour. It was really, really sour. And of course, the banners made an appearance, you know, the usual sort of stuff we've started to see from the last few games were creeping in. And I think for the first time in a long time, I think Roy Hodgson has really shown his visibility to fan pressure. So, you know, even after the game, I think he was discussing how much it was starting to hurt to see, um, you know, the fans sort of turning a little bit on him. But he wasn't going to be cowed in his own words to pressure from from Palace fans and both from the Brighton fans that were taunting him. So I think there's really something to be said there for the mood going into this game. I mean... Where would you say, let's let's look after that game later, but where would you say morale was going into that game, Bruno? It was negative. Um, and a lot of that stems from, like Liam was saying, Roy Hodgson's approach to these kinds of games. You know, he's right that this is um this is a manager that instills fear into his own team. You know, we set up away from home always as if we're going to be beaten and, and as if we are going to be peppered with attacks um similarly against any opposition team we give them way too much respect you know we go into every game going well this is a good team in good form are they either in good form or they've got strong players even if they're in crap form you know no matter what there are always excuses about what the opposition's quality is compared to us right and i feel like even when we were losing and drawing and losing and drawing and failing to win under Patrick Vieira. And it was an awful run. There's no doubt about it. The football was dire. I still felt like we didn't give them that kind of respect. You know, you could tell that we were struggling. You could tell the tactics weren't right. It was the right decision to sack Vieira, of course. But we never gave them as much respect as we have done in recent times under Roy. Um, And you could see hints of it last season as well when Roy came in. You know, games against Spurs, Spurs in terrible form that had just been beaten by however many goals 
by um by Newcastle, right? They got hammered. Um, they sacked their manager. They'd sacked their caretaker manager. They brought in Ryan Mason, right? And we just went over there and just rolled over one nil in an embarrassing performance at Spurs, right? Whenever Roy Hodgson gets gets put up against a a quote unquote bigger team, he'll just tell you like, "All right, lads. Well, you know they're tough." Chelsea, we have on Monday. They're in pretty crap Premier League form. They're inconsistent. They're inexperienced. We could, at full strength, really take the game to them. We're at home. But instead, what's going to happen is the atmosphere is going to be down and damp again because it's a placeholder game. People in this game want to see us lose to Chelsea to ensure the end of Roy Hodgson. Because what does a victory mean? It means another month of this uncertainty, this negativity, this absent style of play. Right. And I don't want to be a Palace fan that says we want Palace to lose because, of course, we need a win. Right. We're at a point in the Premier League season where we desperately need a win. But for the long term of this football club, Roy Hodgson's leaving anyway. Right. He does go in the summer. And if we can't find a replacement now, we're not going to find anyone in the summer. So what happens then? Right. Do we bring in Paddy McCarthy? I'm getting off topic. But my point is we don't have a plan. That's clear. And we give opposition teams way too much respect and that's a symptom of the Roy Hodgson management style and that is why people are negative going into games and it's why the fans weren't on the team side going into Brighton and it's possible that that contributed because you need support to be spurred on as a player and they weren't getting any support because the fans weren't getting any anything to cheer for from from manager or, or team. Yeah, I mean now that we've established this kind of mood I mean Essentially, the same talking points haven't really changed, but I think the way that the Brighton game panned out, the way it was utterly humiliating for us as a fan base, it's only served as a catalyst for these fears, you know. And then t- just just to, just to really rub salt in the moods, right? We have the situation where Elise is kind of barely cleared to be fit on the bench. He's told by the medical team Hodgson that he he's only eligible for maybe forty five minutes. Now, to Hod- in Hodgson's defence, that was coming from the medical team and not him, but. Nonetheless, with the team 3-0 down and utterly defeated at half-time, he then decides to sort of, you know, have this have this moment of what seems like insanity where he just throws a, a sort of high-risk Elise onto the field to try and, what, turn the, the game. Turn we through that decision, Liam, because it was something that seemed to alienate a lot of people in, in the midst of what a horrendous season already for recurring injuries. I cannot fathom that decision. I like The more we sat on it, the more... Absolutely crazy, it seemed to me. You know, I've I've thought about this, and I can't think of a good reason why. And I've I've settled on. You look at the risk versus reward of bringing Michael Elise on, coming off the back of a hamstring injury, knowing that he's only semi fit, and at three 0 down as well. And you look at it and you go, well, okay, the the potential reward is realistically this is is maybe we get a goal back maybe a couple it's not quite as embarrassing it might save the mood a little bit you look at the risk is we lose our best player for the foreseeable and lose the game anyway and we've got the worst case scenario we've got the you know we got the risk and when you weigh those two options up how on earth did the reward outweigh the risk you know i i, I cannot fathom it like we were we're going to lose that game regardless. I know that sounds defeatist, but you know you look at it realistically. We just were like there was no world in which Brighton were conceding three without scoring another one, given the form we're in. So there was no good reason to put him on. And if there was, it wasn't at forty five minutes. 
And uh, are we going to be? Are we, is it worth mentioning the uh, the comments from Roy today? Because I've got plenty to say about that. Because that links into the Elise injury. Even on that, Liam, just just a bit, Bruno, um, on that situation. You know, we tweeted at the time that essentially it felt like Hodgson was endangering the welfare of one of his own players for the sake of his own career. I mean, it's really interesting that we're, we're both both with Vieira and Hodgson were talking about you know really really poor defeats to Brighton, albeit in different circumstances, and both men basically facing seemingly different options at the end of that game. With Vieira basically knowing his time was up, whereas Hodgson has admitted that. He hasn't even had a discussion with the board about his future. Now, we know separately, both from our own sources and from other aspects of the media, that the board seems unanimously agreed that this sort of gambit with Hodgson has failed, that this is the time for change. There are difficulties with that, as we'll get on to later. But it seems like Hodgson is really just kind of plodding on. And there seems to be a kind of, you know, status at the moment where we're sort of in in limbo. You know, nothing's changing until there's the opportunity for change. Um, I would contest whether that's really true in the first place, but... It seems to feel like we're in this limbo state regardless. Um, you know, where what do you really make of all this, Bruno? We failed is is how I feel like it. Like that's not a blind superlative, right? I'm not just saying, oh, you know, we have actually failed with this season. Cause I'm gonna ask both of you, what let's start with you, Alex. What is what do you think a, an objective for for the season was? What what would you say as a fan at the end of last season was your objective for this season? Well, I think if if we look with with Hodgson's appointment and we accept that that was always a given, which it wasn't, but for the argument's pre-Hodgson, sake, you know, pre Hodgson, I, I want to know what you were thinking pre Hodgson. Oh, oh pre Hodgson, I think it was a chance to get back on track. Oh, totally, it was it was a chance to build on or at least return to some of the progress we saw under the first season with Vieira. You know, it was a chance to re-implement a manager who we could invest in the long term, who had a brand of football, who had a, a shared vision with the club, and um, to bring in players that could then suit that vision and to address a few key areas in the squad. Now, that wasn't really achieved. I think Hodgson coming in was obviously a bit of a disaster. But even with Hodgson there, you know, there was always a chance that, you know, Hodgson simply doesn't really change too much from the success that he brought at the end of last season. Um, and it continues that. There was a chance that we see the same sort of more attacking football that we did, that we get results off the back of that, which I think do owe in large part to a greater sense of freedom he afforded his players in a way that we haven't seen this season. And, um, you know, there were plenty of opportunities for things to pan out differently, but for a combination of, you know, medical failure through any ability to invest in a long-term vision, you know, we've just kind of drifted, haven't we? So any 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 ultimate desire to see attacking football, a brand of football, a project, perhaps even a top 10 finish if we're lucky, it's gone out the window. And now neutrals think we're mugs for wanting the bare minimum that you could expect yeah. from any club that seems to be well run. I mean, it's insane to me, but Liam, I'll let you go on that as well. What, what were your expectations then? And how has it differed? Um, I echo much of your sentiments, mate. I think we had a real opportunity, and what I expected was us to, to, you know, a big handshake and a thank you to Roy on his way out. You know, really did us a favour, and we would have, you know, looked back on his time at the club with, you know, a lot of gratitude, and that would have been a key opportunity to go, okay, right, we have a decent squad at the moment. How can we make it better? How can we push on? And what managers can help us push on? And instead, we, you know, I don't want to say we, you know, I was going to say I expect top 10 or top eight or, you know, anything because a uh, season's unpredictable, but I was expecting us to try and move forward. Instead, what we did was we dilly-dallied around Wilf. We dilly-dallied around the manager situation, stayed still, 
and then have you know subsequently gone backwards because of it, both through a lack of movement in the transfer window and reappointing Roy. And I think most people, when we saw when you know when we saw that Roy was going to be reappointed for the season, at best thought, ah, well, this is going to be fine. But nobody was excited by it. You know, let, let's be real. I think I don't even think Steve Parrish would have been excited by it when he when he decided upon this. You know, the the best case scenario from the board perspective, as soon as we hired Roy again, was okay. We'll stay up and it will be fine. But I don't know how they they could have expected that, given both the tools he gave he was given, and his track record over an entire season. When you look at his previous two full seasons with us, you know, the COVID season and the season before was absolutely miserable. You're spot on um, in that it's miserable football. And at the summer, we were talking about chance and opportunity and, you know, desire to improve. Even after we appointed Hodgson, we were talking about um, top half as as an aim. And we've failed there's that word again, to achieve any of those things. We failed to capitalise on an opportunity. We failed to replace Wilf. We failed to go anywhere near top 10. We failed to compete. Um, and yeah, injuries have played a role, but we've also failed those players and how we've used them. Um, every game feels like an admission of defeat before it's even started. Um, every fan can see what's going to go wrong and then it goes wrong in that we concede set-piece goals every game. We don't have a set-piece coach. We don't have a left winger and now we can't attack. Our players get injured when we foresee it. Everyone was fuming about the Elise substitution and 10 minutes later, he comes off. Um, it's so predictable, but it's not like a team like... <laughs> extreme example, Manchester City, where you can predict a win, right? We are predictably atrocious and conceding goals to ridiculous teams in every... you know. When we do have a chance to play well, we played Sheffield United, bottom of the league, 10 points, right? We conceded inside 25 seconds to the worst team the Premier League has seen in five plus years. 21 seconds. We then score, show that we've got quality and concede immediately after again through a deflected goal. It's like we are the masters of our own demise. We roll over and just let it happen because there's a horrific contrast between and conflict between everyone at the club the players want to play a style of football that they were signed and promised a style of football that the club hasn't followed through with because they were scared off by Vieira the club itself wanted to move away from Roy because let's admit it he's old and he plays shit football um, and we sacked the manager rightfully like I said who was playing progressive football and then went back to it we went back to the football that was worse than the shit football like and then we kept him on for another year, disobeying all the promises we'd made to these players. And these are players that are signed for possession-based football. Adam Wharton is best at playing out from the back. We can't do that because the manager is setting us up to play counter-attacking football, even if we're at home against bottom of the league, who we rolled over to and conceded two goals to and needed goals and assists from the best players in our team to escape from that and to keep his job in the case of Roy. And now they're both injured because he can't manage them and our medical team can't. I'm rattled because it's predictable, it's boring, and it's embarrassing. We are an embarrassment of the Premier League because we have stayed still when we had a chance. We've now lost that chance because our players are going to leave in the summer because no one wants to stay at a team where it's in such disarray. And because there is no unison 
our board can't even agree. And the one time they can agree on something, they can't even execute it because no one else wants to join because they've seen the utter clusterfuck that our club is. No one wants a part of it and we're stuck with it. It's a snake eating its own tail at every level. The disconnect is systemic from board level right through to the management, right through to the players, right through to the medical team. It's a clusterfuck, right? We need to move on and discuss the future though because there is plenty to be said there. Regarding the managerial situation, um, we of course know that the board seems like they're looking to make an appointment at some point soon. Um, until uh, an available candidate in the board's mind becomes available, we won't be sacking Roy. That's essentially what we're understanding from the narrative in the media at the moment. Um, the likes of Julian Lepetegui and Steve Cooper have been sounded out quite actively, but they've both turned down the opportunity to manage the club while they're firefighting at the moment. From previous um, indications in the media, we know that John Textor and the like uh, all believe that Basically, for the Sheffield game was the most opportune moment to appoint a new manager, given the gap in, in fixtures. Um, it wasn't taken. It was viewed as, quote, a missed opportunity by the likes of John Taxter and so on. Um, but here we are. The border unanimous. It seems like Steve Parrish himself has finally realised the game's up. And, you know, I, I think we've been so critical on this podcast and as a fan base lately. I think it's got very ugly and personal, but I will give credit to him from my perspective where it's due. He's come around to that. I think he recognises that it's untenable to defend what we've been seeing as a fan base. And I think that, you know, the relationship with the fan base is still something that he he wants to protect and he knows it's in the best interest of the club. So ultimately, what am I getting at here? Well, a change will be coming. It might not be coming this week. It certainly won't be coming for the Chelsea game, but change will be on the way, hopefully, at some point. Where do we go from here? I mean, do you think that's going to be a prolonged process now that we're sort of right in the middle of this sort of phase of, of limbo, Bruno? Well, we're in trouble um, in that not many managers seem willing to, to take on a role at this, this stage of the season with the players that we have in the squad that we've got. Um, but yet again, if we were to hire a manager this season, they probably wouldn't be the right manager in the long run. It would be someone to, to keep us up rather than someone to return to the project. And it feels like we're back stuck in this sort of hell that we would have been in if we sort of sacked Roy in February 2021. Right, in that we've got Roy, who's no longer able to bail us out because you can't just come in and, you know, fix things up. Um, and there's no one waiting in the wings to take up a role right now. And if there is in the summer, I think Kieran McKenna is the most exciting option and the most realistic for us, especially if they don't get promoted and they seem to be on a bit of a downward spiral at the moment. Um, you know, if we were to get, say, Steve Cooper, who isn't necessarily an ideal choice right now. We'd be stuck with him for X amount of time, provided he keeps us up anyway, right? It It's scary because I think despite how bad the football is and despite how bad the results are, I think there is still a sense that Roy keeps us up, but it's just appalling. And the fans clearly have had enough. I've had enough. So the question is, do you take quote-unquote guaranteed safety, but God knows at this point, um but terrible football and Kieran McKenna in the summer or Cooper or, you know, Glasner of um, formerly Frankfurt now um, and then hold them for, for two, three years. Sort of about where do you want to be? Who do you want your identity, identity to be? Because I think Cooper probably gives us some kind of impact. But like, imagine Roy Hodgson goes and is replaced with that. Like, you know, it's it's not great. Glasner's an, an interesting football uh, football manager in that he hasn't managed in the Premier League yet, right? So that would be a bit more of a risky out there call. I don't think 
he necessarily brings the star quality to invigorate our squad. It would be a little bit Hassan Hussle-esque, and I'm, I'm not sure if we need that right now. For me, at this stage in the season, a big name with sort of attitude is what we need. Not Jose Mourinho, but a Jose Mourinho-type <laughs> character. You know, someone that quality and um, implied status. Julian Lepetegui, for example, would have been the right person to come in and... Um, you know, keep us up and reinvigorate a team that has become complacent and scared somehow at the same time. So, you know, of those options, there isn't really a clear one, but I fear that whatever decision we make, it'll end up screwing us over in the long term. Liam, how do you how do you feel about this one? I'm just going to miss just before you go in, Liam. I mean, do you buy into this narrative just to build off of that? Do you build on this narrative that we're kind of not unmanageable, but that we're we're in a tight situation and therefore we're unattractive? Because a lot has been made of this idea as to, well, you know, if you've got no pressure to take a job, why would you go and manage Palace at this stage of the season? The answer is, if you're in the Premier League, you're not an unattractive job. You know, it immediately makes you one of the 20 most attractive jobs in football. Um, well, at the very least in England. Um, I think yeah, there's obvious... Barcelona over Sheffield is a bit... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, fair point. I will concede on that. It's, it makes you twenty one of the 20 most attractive jobs in England in football. Um, and there is obvious downside to, to taking this job. You know, we're in a very toxic environment at the moment. Um uh, at least he's written off for at least two months. Decore's written off for the rest of the season. Um, there's question marks over our medical staff. You know, Eze's in and out of the team with injury. You know, there's a, a whole host of, you know, reasons why this isn't the perfect job, but it's still a bloody good job. You know, I think you can look at the those quality players that are all injured, the ones that I've mentioned. You know, they are absolutely quality. And if there's a manager that's going to be sticking around longer than till the end of the season, then, you know, they will benefit from at least a couple of those, you know, going into next season. Um, we have a very strong academy. Um, you know, I'm not saying necessarily this crop of under-21s or even crop of under-18s, but sooner rather than later, there is a manager that's going to benefit massively from the the prospects that we do have. Um, you know, and so it's, it's, it's difficult to come to a conclusion, but the short answer is no, we remain an attractive proposition purely because how many opportunities will someone like Steve Cooper get to manage in the Premier League? You know, he's only had one. He's done okay. You know, say if... Uh, I'm trying to think of an example. You know, if Burnley stay up via minor miracle this season and then sack company midway through next season, are they going to be looking at Steve Cooper as a possibility? You know, I think this is probably his best opportunity to go straight back into the Premier League. I think if he doesn't take this job, he'll have to bring another team up from the Championship. Um but then you look on the other hand, someone like Lopetegui, who I completely agree is right now by far the best option for us. Um, you know, he can sit on his hands and wait, you know, because someone like Seville will go after him. So it's, you know, it's horses for courses and, it, you know, there's not a, a straight answer. But, you know, for as long as we have Premier League status, we should be able to attract a decent manager. And realistically, what I think is going to happen is one of Cooper or Lopetegui will keep playing coy until we put the right, you know, the right amount of money on the avoid relegation bonus, and then that will happen quite quickly. 
God. Where is Lucian Favre when you need him? What's he up to? Come on, he's got to be God. around these days. <laughs> Can you imagine going back to that saga again? God, that was something. What a time to be alive that was. Anyway, I, I, I digress. Um, you mentioned toxicity, Liam. I mean, Roy Hodgson today has come out with quotes about, you know, the fact that the fans seem to have turned on the club. And he didn't mean that in a, in a wholly derogatory way at the fans, but he certainly made the point that it's unhelpful from the club's perspective. I mean, do you go along with that? Do you think fans were being too, you know, we're rightfully aggrieved. I'm not arguing with that. But do you think maybe this is the time to say, look, things are shit. We need to dig ourselves out here. You know, you can have grabs to the board and the play- and Roy himself, but the players themselves need the crowd behind them. Do you go along with that? I think there's very valid arguments to be made for both. I'm not one to sit on the fence most of the time, but I've been toying with this myself over the last week or so because the team are obviously playing worse because we're not supporting them as we normally do. But then neither they nor the management nor the board deserve our support right now you know if we don't put our foot down at this point and say this is ridiculous we are going backwards there are so many issues when are we ever going to put our foot down you know Mm. and you know there's that side of things but then like you say you flip it round and go well we might get relegated if every time you know it'll become an Everton situation you know where fans sorry players are scared of playing at home because they know that the crowd's going to be on our back and firstly, that doesn't help them. And secondly, that's not Palace. So, I, well, it's not been my experience at Palace for the last 22 years. So I don't know what the right answer is there, to be fair. Um, but I know that it's going to take something on the pitch to invigorate the the crowd. You know, we've got to come out fighting against Chelsea. You know, if, you know, Jefferson Lerma goes into an early challenge and, you know, really gets the crowd behind him, you know, crunching Cole Palmer, then chances are we will be, you know, behind them for the bulk of the game. But if we set up and in the first 15 minutes we've conceded the, you know, basically given up possession and gone, let's try not to lose, then yeah, we're going to get on their back. You know, so they have to show us something. But I think there's merit in what you say that, you know, we have to help them to help themselves. That's all it takes, you know, to get the crowd on your side is to show some bit of desire. And there's been a bit. There's been a lot of talk about you know it's not the palace way uh-huh, um, to not be behind behind the te- to not be behind the team, but something you've got to acknowledge this season is that the fans have been right about the direction that this this season would take. You know there was so much disgust at the Roy Hodgson reappointment. There was so much embarrassment at the at the summer transfer window. You know there have been jokes all about how the club has been run this year from Matessa scoring a hat trick to avoid getting sold in the window, right? Just because we make decisions on a whim like that to the constant string of hamstring injuries. And the truth is the fans have been proven right at pretty much every opportunity and the club has been proven wrong. Parrish has made numerous wrong calls. He is a fan at the end of the day. He is the man I trust run the football club. There is no doubt about that. Okay, Parrish out is ridiculously a harsh statement. What I will say is the fans are right to be frustrated and to feel like they can say these things about the club and not 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 support but show their frustration because they called it, right? They were correct. All of this was foreseeable by seemingly everyone but the powers that be um, at Selhurst Park. So where I'll sort of leave that is we need the players to echo the desire of the fans to win because there's no denying Palace fans want to see us win on Monday. 
right? I know I said it would leave us in a weird position with Hodgson, right? But game in, game out, Palace fans want to see their team win, as do it, do every set of fans. And all it takes is a Jefferson Lerma and that let Jefferson Lerma tackle. Like you said, that's five minutes of the crowd singing, guaranteed. Build on that. Have a chance. Have Hughes tackle someone. Come on. All you need are just other moments. France are getting on the ball early on. Just a go on shout for the first time around Selhurst Park in months. You know, that's all you need is someone to spur on the fans. And that's been also, just to link on to another point, the issue with Roy Hodgson's lineups. We haven't had a player that does that in the starting 11. What's Hughes going to do? He can't run. Like, God, he could get outpaced by a ostrich with a broken leg. I don't know. Like, he's just atrociously slow. Schlupp offers nothing going forward. He is statistically the worst forward in the league everywhere, which is just incredible. Um, we've got no creative force in our 11. Mateta can't do anything on his own. Ayu is a defensive forward that's only successful attacking players surrounding him, right? We've got no one that's going to get the go on to, to get the crowd going. So we're looking for that through tackles now. That's how regressive we are under Hodgson. <laughs> Sorry for the side point, but like it says a lot that our biggest excitement nowadays are tackles and blocks rather than... I mean, let's end on an optimistic note, because I think, Bruno, you spell out exactly why fans are right to be frustrated. And it's, you know, a lot of neutrals have made it out to be a sense of entitlement, which is ridiculous. I think we kind of debunked this in the last pod, really. Um, so I won't dwell on that, but but very nicely put. I mean, Liam, let's end on an optimistic note. Things have got toxic. Lamentably, they've got ugly. I think the abuse at a personal level is pretty disgusting, but fans nonetheless right to frustrate their anger. Um, let's end on the kind of the sensible sanity podcast kind of kind of message here. It's going to get better, surely. And why would it be getting better, Liam? Because without relegation, it can't get that much worse. Um, <laughs> Fair point. Uh, it, it's going to get better realistically because it has to. You know, sooner rather than later, you know, these players will turn a corner because they know that their reputations and their, their money's at risk. And that might sound more sort of uh, cutthroat than I mean it to be. But realistically, you know, the, the better these players do, the more money they're going to make. And a relegation on their on their CVs is not good. You know, and they'll pull together for themselves. You know, for all we say about you know, what's gone wrong, you know, in the last couple of years, one thing, Dougie Friedman, who does very well, and I'm not digging out Friedman there generally, he's probably the best thing about the club, but one thing he's done well pretty much always is, you know, find characters and good characters for a dressing room. And I think those players will like each other and will play for each other. And I think that's going to kick in sooner rather than later, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think it just needs one. <laughs> if Can we just play well for 90 minutes consecutively? And I think that will turn the corner. I think all we need is to remind ourselves we can play football again. But I'm... Uh, I try to stay positive here because I don't think that will happen under Roy, but I don't think it, it won't take much to to change to change fortunes. Um, the way I'm thinking is, you know, as a person, Hodgson is brilliant. He has a legacy with this club. I think it's at risk. But that being said, I think he can hold his he can hold his head high. Really, can't he? At the end of the day, he's had a, an illustrious career all over the world. He's covered Palace's darkest even same as blah blah blah. We know this narrative. And I think in the long term, he, he's going to retire soon. He certainly won't be at the club next season. I'd be did. amazed. Twice. 
Well, he never retired. He never formally said retired. I, I want to really contest that, Bruno. He never formally said he, re he would retire. He made that very clear. I think a lot of journalists then jumped the gun and said that he had when he hadn't. I think he's kind of in, a, you know, Neil Warnock is an example of someone who did retire and then has some seemingly unretired about eight times and is now at Aberdeen, God bless him. Neil Warnock couldn't resist the opportunity to manage Killian Phillips. No, exactly. The greatest to ever do it, honestly. All this, you know, who's going to replace McCarthy? He was right there. He was right there, guys. Um, right, on that weird, strange note, I think there's a chance that, you know, eventually we will move on from Hodgson. There will be scope to implement a project. You know, maybe we have a Vieira repeat and we end up with our fifth choice manager, but there really is a chance to go again with what I have to say is on paper the strongest squad we've had in a long, long time. How it's somehow managed to be a disaster season from that perspective astounds me. I think we already know some of the unlucky, unfortunate elements that come into it and strategic failures and so on. But what I will just say is this season has become what it is because we made the wrong decisions and yeah. we've been with worse luck than anyone could expect. But that's what happens if you're not prepared in competitive sport, in elite sport, as the Selhurst um, speaker would say a billion times before every game, as it repeated the Academy football dreams thing. Right. So this is elite sport. It would say like, yeah, prove it, mate. But anyway, yeah. uh, you you really I mean, it's so funny seeing you guys put such a downer on things. You can't help yourselves, can you? And I don't blame you. I think it I is really to be positive, Alex. I want to be positive. All I've done is try and search for, for ways to be positive. The positivity is located everywhere else than the first team. Our women's team is doing great. Our 18s are doing brilliantly. They're playing as we speak. Our 21s are, you know, developing well we've got players performing out on loan Killian Phillips like you said Malcolm Abue got his first assist on his debut for Molenbeek at the weekend so you know there are positives club-wide the problem is they're not being given a chance to shine or show themselves in front of the average fan because our manager won't play them so once the manager once Roy has has gone whether it be today monday you know end of season there will be something there will be an excitement there will be an opportunity there will be a chance like we spoke about earlier um to improve and we need to capitalize it capitalize on it and i think we've probably learned from the season that we can't just stand still again um so what there really is at the end of the day is an opportunity with the players coming through and with the spaces opening up we've just got to make sure that this time we've learned from our mistakes and we capitalize on them I think a bit of a more free-flowing discussion there, guys, but quite therapeutic, which I think is what people want right now. I think everyone, you know, whether it's the spaces that you've been tuning into on our socials or just the general discourse around the club at the moment, I think people are just need a space to vent. People want to talk to each other and feed off of that. I think there's a lot of negativity, though, and I think sometimes it's easy to get lost into that. You know, at the end of the day, you know, maybe the sun will rise again, even if it has torn its hamstring. Um, I think we'll get there. It's not going to be this season. I think it will be a write-off. The fittest season has had you know, so many knock-on effects across the club, but there are just these bright sparks that shimmer, whether it's David Ozo or Mateus France having these good spells this season and these little cameos, whether, like you say, it's the women's team, the youth team, you know, there is so much going for this club. And of course, let's not forget, you know, you guys, the fans, us, all of us that are never, despite how bad and turgid the football is, how strategically flawed the club feels at the moment, you know, we're all... We're all Palace fans at heart. We all love this community. We all love where this club could go. And I think there are signs whereby, you know, maybe we restructure, maybe we, you know, we move the manager on, we sell players and so on, where we could get back on track. And I think that's something we should always, always keep in the back of our minds. You know, 
There is a genuine potential for real transformation at this club. It's simply a long way off happening. And I think it's hit a kind of low point before we hit any kind of high point. And maybe the pendulum swings back the other way. Who knows? But what I do know is if you're not following us already, guys, you should be doing so on Twitter at The Palace Way. Um, please, if you're not checking out our website, we publish loads of amazing articles top to bottom from, you know, transfer rumours and speculation to actual updates and news right through to superb analysis of our youth teams and our upcoming players. I really recommend checking out our 1% series. And um, of course, we host spaces on our Twitter now. So again, make sure you're following our socials and checking out our website. And um, if you haven't done so already, make sure you leave a review as well. It can be one star, five star. You know, we prefer five, obviously, but we want to make like absolutely clear that, you know, we just want any and all feedback. If you're not liking something about the pod, tell us because it's the only way we're going to improve. And um, that being said, we're still growing. We're still learning. We're still trying to improve the pod and the feedback we've had has been tremendous. So please keep letting your thoughts be known. Um, but other than that, all that's left to say for me is thank you very much for listening. Um, Bruno, any closing thoughts? Good to have you back, by the way. Thanks for having me on again. Um, let's hope next time uh, I'm on here, there's something a little bit more uplifting to, to talk about. I think just with the way things are for you at the moment, Bruno, it'll probably be a few months before we have you back regularly. But hopefully by that point, we're not, you know, staring down a barrel at, you know, Preston and Rotherham away with Daniel Mignol's going up to the likes of, you know, you know, Leeds and Bradford and all the rest. But actually we're looking at maybe a chance to reset in the Premier League, you know. Let's hope, right? Let's hope it's sort of sunshine, football, nothing left to play for, but we'll see. Anyway, great having you on, Bruno. All the best, obviously. We hope to see you as much as possible, but keep it up, mate. Um, and Liam, any closing thoughts from you? Uh, no, nah, mate, like you say, um, if we're going to end on a positive note, there's plenty outside the first team, and we have to remember that the first team isn't, while it's the most important part of the club, it's not, you know, everything about the club. You know, the likes of Jesse Derry and Zach Marsh and... David Ozo, you know, there are positives around the club. Um, so that's what I'm clinging on to uh, while I watch the second half of the Palace under-18s cup game. I know, I, I'd hate to really throw this in, but obviously while we've been recording, Zach Marsh has done his hamstring. So if that's not the Palace way... <laughs> fine. It's the it's Palace fine. way. It's the Palace way. Everything's fine, guys. It's it is the palace way. You guys knew it was going to happen. If there's not something that sums up this club, I think that's probably it. It's kind of a comedy, but I think within the heart of it, there is genuine optimism as we've outlined. Look, let's try not to be too down. Let's see how we go from here. But ultimately, thanks for listening again, everyone. Thank you very much for uh, for your all your kind love and support, and we'll see you again in the next one. Thank you.